0: we all need to laugh. We choose truth over facts. And now for a perpetual political protest in progress. Judge
1: my physical mental health, my physical as well as my mental health fitness.
0: Coffee time. And welcome back to the Amokan Coffee Social Club Conservative Hour of Power and Enlightenment Salon. I'm Jason Floyd, your host, and uh, this is episode 54, regular episode 54. Our guest today is Representative David Eastman. Uh, David, what, what's, your, what's your current district designation? What's the number you hail from?
1: The Wasilla and Meadow Lake District which is now House District 27.
0: And this is an important point to to bring up I think as as we sort of build the context for our conversation today is is that uh, that district includes a now defunct or missing district that was a representative by uh, Christopher Kirka is that correct?
1: Yeah, the Wasilla District was District 27. Um, I don't actually live in the city limits, but they they put me into it. And uh, what that meant practically was you had one less conservative legislator in the House because – uh, Representative Kirk and I could not both represent the same district.
0: Right. Now, Representative Kirka ran for governor um, and uh, had he won, he wouldn't have been able to fill that seat. But uh, the the fact that they changed the districting so that he could not run again as long as he lives in that district uh, was not missed by those of us out here paying attention. Um next to you i would argue that he was probably one of the most conservative voices in the house he was a a freshman representative and um he was treated much the same way you are I, i think uh probably they were a little more polite to him but um uh for those of you who are not aware uh representative eastman has been in the news a lot lately um primarily in conjunction with his decision to uh, attend a, a now well-known rally that occurred in uh, Washington, D.C. on January 6th of, uh, I guess it would be over a year ago now. And uh, and then also uh, his association of some sort or uh, fashion with an organization called the Oath Keepers. Uh, Representative Eastman, can you kind of bring us up on the, up, up to speed with sort of who the oath keepers are, what your affiliation with them, if any was and uh, and what transpired after you came back from that uh, now infamous rally uh, <laughs> and uh, what that has has uh, created um, in the way of, of maybe a, a constitutional crisis.
1: Yeah, well there's certainly a lot there to unpack uh, the, the short version the, the intro is that the Oath Keepers was the excuse that the uh, swamp in Juneau latched on to to try to remove me from office and overturn my election. Actually, they tried to overturn my election in 2020. Um, they didn't know anything about Oath Keepers, and they didn't know that I had joined you know, 13 years ago. Uh, so they simply latched on to the fact that you know I attended the president's uh, speech in Washington, D.C., and, and that was their reason why my election needed to be overturned. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the other guy, you know, put into office, whoever the governor would appoint, et cetera. Um, that, you know, drum they beat on for over a year um, uh, didn't go anywhere, at least not where they wanted it to go. And so then they, uh, their next play was to latch on to, well, you know, not only did I, I go to Washington, D.C. on January 6th and listen to the, the president speak, but I also, back in 2009, 2010, uh, joined Oath Keepers. And so they then beat that drum for a bit and filed a lawsuit, um, tried to overturn both of my elections. And, um, you know, that only relatively recently wrapped up.
0: So tell us just real briefly what joining Oath Keepers entailed. Um, that meant going onto their
1: website and. Um, I think, I think it was like 30 bucks, uh, dues, um, back in 2009, 10 era. And, um, that was, that was it actually, I demonstrated that I was a military veteran, um, in the center of my, uh, discharge document. And that was,
0: that was it. So in your role as a, as uh now correct me if I'm wrong, were you air force or army? I can't remember. I was Army uh, since West Point. That's right. Okay. So Army, and in your role with the, with the armed services, um, I read uh, somewhere that you actually functioned as a police chief uh, at one point. Can you just briefly tell us where that was and what that entailed?
1: Yeah, I was commissioned to the uh, military police corps, and so when I was uh, lieutenant and then also the captain, Back when I was lieutenant, I was the chief uh, law enforcement officer, interestingly enough, for um, the military base that I was stationed on in Afghanistan. Uh, that was the uh, military base in the green zone of the capital in Afghanistan. I was the provost marshal for the installation.
0: And so I imagine you had folks under your command, uh, your direction. What what kind of complement of... of uh, officers and enlisted folks did you have under your direct, uh, guidance and, and, um, and orders?
1: Yeah. Well, as a Lieutenant, um, you start off as a platoon leader. So I had, uh, 40 military police, uh, personnel with me there in Afghanistan. Uh, originally we were at Bagram, uh, doing missions outside of the air base there. And then we, um, my whole platoon actually went down to Kabul. And so we were in Kabul for a time
0: Uh, and then some went back and, and I stayed in Kabul for an even longer time. Okay. So, so you were daily operations. You're working with all these guys and gals that are serving our country, uh, honorably. Um, you come back to the the States, long story short, at some point, you see this organization that says, Hey, we value the oath that you gave when you, uh, signed up for the armed services which by the way isn't it true that police officers also qualify for oath keepers based on their service yeah
1: if you've been a a first responder and you've served honorably then uh, you could also join um it expanded i think to first responders you know after after a time initially i think it was just military okay
0: so essentially, if I understand the the story correctly, you you saw an organization that you were looked like it had a good mission and and uh, stood for the oaths that you already had given in, in uh, your role serving the country. and uh, you decided to join and pay a fee. and um, now the next step did they did they invite you to their super, Secret meetings at an undisclosed location, where uh, you were a, a central part of planning for the overthrow of the government.
1: You know, I, I missed that part. Um, actually, there really wasn't anything uh, of a, a active chapter in Alaska, so I actually was never invited to any meetings. And um, you know, it's just an uh, organization with an awesome uh, mission, still is, and um, you got a lot of good people that have been involved. I'm glad to. Do anything to support the Constitution. So,
0: so the, the reason I'm hammering part. Away, the, the reason I'm hammering away at this is is I want to draw a parallel. I want to draw a correlation. So I have been a dues-paying member of an organization. Some people may have heard of called the National Rifle Association. And at some point in recent history, there was some question about where those monies were being spent and 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 how. And uh, their, their director, Wayne LaPierre, was accused of doing some things that uh, I guess even the state of New York and, and their legal system decided was, was unethical or inappropriate or whatever. And um, so they went after the NRA. And, um, you know, I've been more involved with the NRA than I think you have been with the Oath Keepers in that not only have I paid dues, but I've actually attended meetings and helped organize, you know, events and my children participated in shooting clubs. And, you know, so if we can now presume that uh, you're guilty by association, if you pay dues to an organization that one side or the other, of the aisle doesn't like, or doesn't agree with, and there is a radical actor somewhere in that organization of Thousands or tens of thousands of members that now everyone is guilty by association because somebody has done something um, untoward, and and uh, the, I, I guess that's really the 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 premise of the case that was brought to you is that that uh, there were some fe- people maybe doing some unsavory or unethical or illegal things perhaps at some level in that large organization and. And now you're guilty by association and the constituents of your district don't have the right to elect you uh, based on what the decision of an activist judge. Is that is that basically a a fair summary?
1: Yeah, well, it's not just a judge. I mean, that that's exactly where they like to put conservatives. I had a a Democrat legislator tell me in a committee meeting that, you know, as a legislator, I shouldn't I shouldn't join any organizations because, you know, uh, well, gosh, you could you know, be liable for whatever based on something going on in the, the organization. So, yeah, they, they would like you and I not to join any organizations, not to start any organizations, not to be a
0: part of any organizations if they're conservative. Okay. All right, so let's fast forward. I, I guess uh, it's, it sounds like your, your time in court is drawn to a close, or is there still something out there hanging, or where, where are we at?
1: Um, well, as as we knew from the beginning, um, the Constitution doesn't allow you to uh, persecute someone legally for their political beliefs or attending um, a, a rally and not breaking any laws, that sort of thing, not engaging any violence or, or promoting or encouraging it. Um, but, you know, they decided that uh, they were going to essentially fine me $250,000 for, for going to that rally. So, um, I had to come up with and, and go into debt for a little over $250,000. Uh, fortunately, there were some uh, donors to my campaign, my legal fund, who helped to, to raise some of that. But most of that still um, needs to be paid to my attorneys for my legal defense.
0: So that, the outcome was that you have been fined and you're on the hook. Yeah, the outcome was I'm innocent.
1: I, I did nothing wrong and I need to pay the cost of my legal defense.
0: Wow. That, that I, sorry for the pregnant pause there. That's just, that's just uh, stunning and disturbing, and it kind of proves a point that, that I've made recently is it doesn't matter if you're wrong or right in our system today. If the system wants to take you down, they'll just bury you in legal fees and break you financially and emotionally and otherwise. So well, it's go ahead. Yeah, it, that
1: that that <clears throat> uh, that's part of it. You know, the, the other part is that they're simply you know making it a premium. They're they're raising the cost of being able to have a conservative voice representing you in government in, in any part of government, uh, and they do that, you know, in this case by taking you know a thirty forty thousand dollar campaign and turning it into you know a. campaign, which, of course, the cost of that has to be borne on your supporters, your constituents, uh, your friends, your family. Um, In this case, you know, my family is currently bearing the most of that. But um, I had a number of constituents and supporters who were, you know, putting off debts just to help us get through the trial, um, you know, not paying their own bills to try and make their vote actually count, because that's what they were arguing. They were arguing and the judge was saying, yeah, it makes sense to me. That your vote shouldn't count because, you know, the person you voted for, you know, it's the wrong candidate, you should have voted for some other person. And so, you know, by, uh, instead of giving money to my opponent, they tried to help my opponent by, uh, you know, raising money for the law firm that was going after me. So what they've effectively done now is they have removed the opportunity to compete on a level playing field. Uh, against you know their candidates and, and their legislators come campaign and election time. Now what we have to do, and I'm not the only one. I was the fourth sitting Republican legislator uh, to be sued by the same you know left wing radical law firm. But what we now have to do, just to have you know a voice that's conservative in my district, is we basically have to become you know political missionaries. We have to raise our own support. You you got campaign time, you raise money for campaign, and then both in campaign and out of campaign time, you need to raise your own support just to exist and be able to defend yourself legally. So, I mean, I effectively now need to have about a thousand supporters who are willing to give me, you know, $250 a year, which they're saying is the maximum that I can accept because if I accept more than that, it would be unethical. um, Just to pay, you know, the $250,000 for uh, this lawsuit not to mention whatever you know the next lawsuit is they dream up.
0: So let me ask you: um, Is there any chance for appeal on this decision? Is uh, are you pursuing any any other sort of angles to try and uh, hold actually the system accountable for its unconstitutional wielding of of power that we have not authorized it to to wield?
1: Well, no, we already won. We, we we won completely. We didn't win partially. We we won completely. But you're still um, you're still you know, fine. We were, we were in the right. Yes. and and we are responsible um, because you know under under their way of looking at it, you know the the law firm that you know was suing me basically, um, you know they were just trying to defend the Constitution from you know um, from conservatives who are trying to violate the Constitution. So so they shouldn't have to pay any you know, attorney fees or anything like that. And certainly not to someone like me. Um, so that's, that's where we get to um, at, at the end of the day. You now have to, if, if you want to elect a conservative, who's going to be a conservative voice for you in government um, and is not going to, you know, tow whatever, um, you know, swamp line they're, they're putting out, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you more. And, and of course that's the prelude to, you know, a day in time if we keep going where, That won't even be an option to you. That just will not legally be permitted. You will have no voice. So Right now, we fight the fight. We pay the cost.
0: Before I forget, because as we delve into some other topics here, uh, I may not remember this otherwise, but uh, if people who are listening to this want to provide you with assistance, either financial or otherwise, what's the best way to do that?
1: Yes. Um, I can accept uh, $249.99. That's the maximum that each individual can donate to my legal defense fund. Uh, And you can find that at davideastman.org. And you can make a donation online. You can send a check. um, Either or both would be uh, gratefully appreciated. So that I can continue to um, hold the line in Juneau as a legislator.
0: So how much are you still on the hook for? Hundred and thirty-five thousand. Hundred and thirty-five thousand, folks. That's uh, that's a pretty good uh, amount of money for um, for a house. You know, uh, if I had hundred and thirty-five thousand today, I could pay my house off. Um, and uh, and this person who's decided to wear the big target on his back uh, has stepped up to serve the constituents who. They all. It sounds like they all uh, really like him. Uh, what was the the total vote outcome for your reelection this this go round?
1: Yeah, you know it's interesting because uh, we'll never know what the the vote might have been. What we will know is that since I wasn't able to campaign, since I was literally in court pretty much the entire campaign, um, uh, went and was able to knock on you know very very few doors, uh, but. With with all of that, we still came in first out of you know three candidates and got a majority right off the bat. So very and, that, great and
0: that's during this uh, ranked choice uh, system. Yes, you still won yes. even though the scales the deck was stacked against you. Yes, and restacked against you. <laughs> uh, literally. So let's let's. But, just, but, but yeah, so the uh, I just to
1: to put a bow on it, the judge literally said we could not bring evidence into the case about you know the political motivation behind our opponent's literally the fact that they were you know supporting my opponent through the lawsuit and and saying instead of you know sending money to my opponent's campaign fund send it to this law firm's you know account instead uh, and because of that the judge required me to spend my campaign time digging up digging through 300,000 documents turning over 30,000 pages of personal correspondence to my political opponents during the campaign. And then when we asked for discovery, the judge said, no, you're not entitled to any, you get zero documents
0: because it's not political. So there you go. Wow. Well, I'm sorry that you had to go through that, but uh, this should be a wake up call to everyone listening to this podcast. And I would encourage you, you know, it's one thing to listen to the podcast. We really appreciate your support, but even if you can't give two hundred and forty nine dollars to Mister Eastman, uh, and you don't, uh, you're not able to support us with Patreon. One of the things you can do is like and share this with everyone you know, so that we can uh, make this story go viral. We need. We need every patriotic Alaskan, every patriotic American who really loves this country and wants to see our representative republic survive into the next century to take notice and stand against the tyranny of an out-of-control system. And uh, we, we've uh, covered some stories here on the peninsula recently uh, with uh, uh, David Haig and uh, some of the issues concerning uh, corruption in the judicial system. Um, I'm looking at, a, at a, just a, a title here from a, a past article, uh, February 2nd, in uh, the Alaska Watchmen, uh, that reads, Alaska's chief justice derides those who suggest judges may be activists. Now, this is on the heels of the Supreme Court creating some new rules that basically entirely gut the Alaska grand jury system from being able to indict people that they have investigated for, uh, uh, investigated uh, specifically public officials, Uh, both appointed and elected, who have been accused of criminal activities and whom which the grand jury has found sufficient evidence to indict them for those allegations. And uh, is it any wonder that we have the outcome we have in Mr. Eastman's case when the judiciary has now presumed the authority to create, to legislate through policy, to take away the rights that are guaranteed to us in Alaska's constitution. Any any uh, any insight into what's happening with the courts? Any hope for the future, Mr. Eastman?
1: Yeah. So the Alaska judicial system is basically on autopilot, um, and it's been you know on that trajectory for for quite some time. Uh, it receives um, <clears throat> very little to no influence from uh, the public as far as the will of the people. Um, you know, the people can elect all their representatives they want. Um, those uh, governors and legislators can uh, appoint and and uh, confirm as many people as they want, and and they will never be able to outvote the judicial system from selecting its own judges and Supreme Court
0: justices and so forth. So it's insulated Um, against public accountability. Yeah, completely
1: insulated. They will always have a majority of of the votes there. And um, it it doesn't matter who you elect, Republicans or Democrats, um, the the judiciary will always be controlled uh, effectively by the Democrats
0: and by the left. So... As a seated legislator, do you have any bills that you're working on, or anything you're you're proposing to change how the uh, the 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 courts behave uh, in this regard? Yeah, uh, we we've, we've put forward
1: bills. I know, um, you know, Christopher Kirka had a particular bill. Uh, George Rousher, Mike Shower, you know, we've all uh, worked on different proposals and amendments and bills. And, and there are ways of, uh, changing the, the autopilot nature of the judicial system. Um, but it's an uphill battle. Um, none of them are, are politically easy, uh, because, you know, functionally, the Democrats never need a majority in the House or the Senate, and they, they haven't had any, uh, since, you know, the early 90s was the last time they had a a majority in the state House. You gotta go back to the 70s till the Democrats had a majority in the, in the state Senate. But they don't need a majority because all they need to do is is make sure that the legislature, um, you know, doesn't act on its authority to uh, remove the judges, which are um, how should we say, uh, extending their power, you know, in violation of the Constitution, which I think they've done in this state more than you know any other state. I mean, you can you can look at what other states have done when their you know supreme courts have gotten out of control. You know, West Virginia, the state house there, literally impeached every single one of the judges uh, and justices on their Supreme court. Um, You know, that is a power the constitution gives to our legislature, but it requires a two thirds vote uh, just as it does in in most other States. And as long as the Democrats, you know, keep that from happening, then the judges will continue to do what they're doing.
0: So let's talk about the dynamics of that two thirds vote and where we sit right now with, uh, I guess the the structure of caucuses and 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 maybe before we dig deeper into that, if you could just give us a a layman's definition of what the purpose of a caucus is, and then how that applies within the Alaska legislative system.
1: Yeah, a lot there too. Um, I guess just to to finish the thought from. Uh, that last topic, you know, the the legislature could change the the way in which uh, magistrates and court of appeals judges are selected. Uh, that's all within legislative control. Um, you know, we could completely rework that process, and and over time rework uh, the way in which those who select our judges, um, you know, are chosen. Uh, but that requires the political will, and and you won't find the swamp getting excited about that. Uh, so that's why it's, it's an uphill battle. But yeah, so the, the caucus system is, is just another, you know, part of the the swamp. Um, you know, there's a, there's a left wing branch of the swamp and there's a right wing, supposedly mm-hmm. branch of the swamp. Um, they call it a caucus. Uh, functionally in, in Alaska, what that means is um, we don't care what the people, you know, say or want. Um, you have this caucus organization, which, you know, claims independence from the, you know, uh, the voters, uh, whether Republican or Democrat voters or independent voters that send legislators to Juneau. Uh, they join a caucus and then they say, you know, sorry, we couldn't vote the way that you wanted us to vote, or maybe that we promised during the campaign uh, trail. Uh, we had to vote the way we had to vote because the caucus told us to. I mean, even Dunleavy, you know, was out making that same argument back when he was my senator. Um, You know, back when Bill Walker vetoed the PFD, um, you know, Senator Willikowski brought it up for a vote to overturn it. And the caucus said, no, we're not going to do that. And all every single one of the Republican senators, including mine, uh, Senator Dunleavy, all voted not to overturn the veto because the caucus told them to basically is
0: is how they explained it. So. Can you describe to us what a binding caucus is? Yeah, you know, in that situation, it's,
1: you know, when you come together and, and you, um, you know, claim to be a, a member of a caucus. And then, you know, the, the next step is that the caucus is going to say, hey, in order to be a member of our club, or, or sometimes it's more like a street gang, in order to be a member of our gang, you need to go through an initiation. You need to commit to support the caucus. Uh, and then, you know, over time, the caucus is going to ask you for, you know, a vote on this or that. Um, usually it involves the budget some way or other. And and the problem, of course, from the public's perspective is that at that point, you're no longer listening to your constituents. You know, they might say vote yes, and, and you then have a, a conflict between what the caucus is telling you to do and what the, the people your district is telling you to do. And uh, some legislators, uh, again, my, my senator being one of them, have, have faced that conflict. And, um, you know, I remember when four of the aides in my senator's office were all fired on the same day because he voted against what the caucus wanted him to vote for.
0: Now, who did the firing? To... Who did the firing? Because I, I think this is a, a detail that most of the public doesn't understand about who does the hiring and firing of staff.
1: Yeah. So the the caucus will choose a representative from the caucus to make those decisions. And they will uh, put them in the position of rules chair, um, technically, you know, a chairman of a committee. But, you know, part of the whole caucus and, um, you know, swamp system is, you know, the secret is that committee actually isn't a committee and almost never meets. You know, in the House, I served on that committee for about six years. And and there was a period of over 700 days, you know, spanning multiple elections where our committee literally made thousands of decisions and never once met. So no transparency, no publicly noticed meetings, no televised decision making process, all made in secret behind closed doors where the public was not invited. And frankly, I wasn't
0: either, even though I was a member of the committee. Interesting. <laughs> I, think word, I think that word is uh, <laughs> an understatement, but interesting. <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but yeah, it's, it's,
1: uh, it's a very efficient way of consolidating power into a very, you know, few number of hands. Um, of course, the swamp loves that. And that's how we keep the people, you know, out of um Decisions that we don't want them to be a part of.
0: So, what caucus do you participate in now?
1: So, um, you know, it's interesting. We saw what happened in the Senate in December. Uh, we followed up by doing almost exactly the same thing in the House uh, in January. And right now, you've, um, you know, the, the people elected a Republican majority in the Senate, but you only have three members of the Senate Republican caucus. Uh, Senator Hughes, Senator Schauer, Senator Myers, uh, and in the House, we've got even less. Uh, I am literally the only member left that's still in the Republican caucus. Um, you, you watched as uh, 19 other Republicans uh, joined the bipartisan majority caucus and one other Republican joined the bipartisan minority caucus, which is, you know, um, in both cases, you've got Republicans and Democrats in both.
0: So at this point um, what does somebody who's not part of a caucus do what what are you able to do <laughs> without being it, part of a caucus sure
1: well in my case you know I, I frankly do exactly the same thing I'd do if I was part of a caucus you know I represent the the people who elected me uh, you know I vote uh, in their best interest and Hopefully, you know, keep up with them, uh, you know, throughout that process as far as communication and, and knowing where they're at on things. Um, but, you know, the, you know, when you sell your vote to the caucus or, or you sell your uh, intention to vote, which is a new way of their describing the process this year, um, you know, the, there are all sorts of things that are, are showered down on you from above. The, the caucus, you know, smiles very uh, warmly on those who, you know, pledged their loyalty to the caucus. And so, um, uh, what, you know,
0: what does that include uh, tangibly? What, what does that mean when they, they smile warmly on you?
1: Yeah. So the, the 19 Republicans who joined the bipartisan caucus, um, in the house, um, you know, they all, uh, were awarded with extra staff. So they got to go out and hire new staff to, to work in their offices and whatnot. Um, and then they turned around uh, after promising that they absolutely wouldn't, uh, they turned around the very next day. Um, and just by virtue of the fact that they didn't invite me to join the club, uh, they decided to make an example of me and fire one of my staff. So uh, the difference between joining the gang is you get more staff and you get a bigger office and you get uh, you know, leadership positions in the legislature and um access to funding of you know, different different ways and then um you know they turn around and say hey um you know the democrats uh every legislator in the building 59 out of 60 um you know are all entitled to at least two staff but um if you're in the house republican caucus you are not entitled to to staff uh, you don't get an extra third or fourth uh, staffer in fact um you know, by virtue of of being in that caucus we've decided that you really don't even need two staff so you can answer your own phones with the help of of just one aide
0: and so realistically the amount of work you can do directly relates to the number of staff you have to help you do it and and I'm speaking from personal experience being for a very short period of time a staff member. But there's a lot of reading to do. There When you look at committees and the work that they're doing and all of the documents that are being sent in by the various agencies and and uh, interested parties and public members with with uh, public comment and input, um, all the data that that comes across that the the bureaucracy compiles, you know, to show why their program's important or what it needs. All of that has to be read and consumed and synthesized, and and uh, and then and then leveraged into actionable documents like, uh, resolutions and, and bills. And so when the caucus basically takes your staff away, they're neutering you. They're, they're, they're making it impossible for you to produce all of the things that your constituents back at home might want you to produce. Is, is that a fair assessment or a fair explanation?
1: You know, it's actually even worse than that. So so thanks for putting a rosy spin on it. Um, so what it means practically to most legislators, um, it, it means that they don't have someone there who's going to write the script for them and tell them what to say when they go to the next House or Senate floor session or the next committee meeting. Um, they don't have someone to prepare the questions in advance for them to ask witnesses at, at hearings and so forth. Uh, basically, we talk about efficiency and we talk about, you know, being able to, you know, produce more in terms of work with more staff. And that's certainly true, but um, to most legislators who rely, you know, entirely on their staff just to function as a legislator, it, it means they're dead in the water.
0: So essentially when you get snubbed by the caucus, your whole district is getting snubbed. By the caucus, the people, the voters in your district that sent you there to represent their interests are getting a big slap in the face and being told you may be Alaskans, but you don't matter.
1: Yeah, and, and it, it actually it isn't just my district and isn't just Mike Shower's district or Shelley Hughes district or Rob Myers' district. It is literally every voter who. Um, voted uh, under the impression that they were voting for a Republican majority Uh, because both in the House uh, and in the Senate, you had Republican senators and House representatives who literally, just like you were saying, who literally said, I was elected based on, you know, a political agenda, you know, call it a party platform, call it, you know, campaign promises, call it, position statements on the candidate's website, you know, whatever it is that, you know, people voted for them based on, you know, some idea of what they would do with policies. They literally said through their actions that you could have voted for a Republican. You could have voted for a Democrat. You could have voted for an independent. You voted for me, but it doesn't matter because I'm deciding now to set aside, you know, the political, um, You know, commitments that I made, how I am entering into an organization which is focused purely on political self-interest of the legislators involved. So we've set aside all those policy commitments, we call it partisanship, and now we're going to enter into a bipartisan, i.e. nonpartisan, gang. And at that point, we can say we are not
0: serving a partisanship interest. What's left? Well, personal interests. Here we are today. Well, and, and a word comes to mind, I don't know if this is the proper usage of it, but it definitely is something that, that uh, may be closer connected to a emotional feeling I'm having, listening to this and, and getting further definition of, of why Juno doesn't work the way we want it to, is the word Politburo. And uh, Politburo, for those who grew up uh, in the Cold War and remember the, the Soviet Union and East Germany and um, the way that their their system of governance under communist rule um, operated, it basically meant that a very small group of people controlled all the policy coming out of government. And, and policy is the... The, uh, the practical sort of directives of how to apply regulation and regulation being a sort of a broader interpretation of what law is, is uh, pointing at. And so while a law might be uh, aspirational in, 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 in its direction, it then requires the government to create a regulation that then interprets what the intent of that law is and then it goes to the bureaucrats to create policies for carrying it out. and It, it seems like a big melange of sort of oatmeal of, of it's taking what should be a well-ordered system with checks and balances that our framers of our constitution created and sort of just throwing them into this caucus system that is really consolidates all the control, all the power all the rulemaking, and, um, and the ability to exercise, sort of pull these tyrannical levers against anybody who would oppose uh, the directives of this small gang in the larger interests of the people who elected them. And so it seems antithetical to the idea of a representative republic. So do we live in a free country? Do we live in a free state? Do we have the checks and balances? I'm monologuing a little here, but, but really these are the questions I think that conservatives and patriots, wherever you may be in the continuum of, you know, loving this country should seriously be asking themselves. And not only asking themselves, but then saying, What is my role and my responsibility to do something to change what is evolving or uh, rather devolving from the original intent of, of the framers? Comments?
1: Yeah, yeah, certainly a lot there, Jason. Um, you know, Polit Bureau obviously stands for, for Political Bureau. Um, and that is, you know, what you would expect to find in Poland under a communist rule or, or East Germany and so forth. And it, it's, it, it's interesting, you know, just to, to realize what happens when you take a political system, which is, um, you know, designed, uh, sensibly to allow the will of the, um, you know, public and the will of voters to be expressed in government. I mean, it, there's. There's a caucus for a reason, you know. It, every legislature in the country, um, Nebraska is a little bit different because it's unicameral and, and they don't really have partisan uh, legislators. But but uh, we'll, we'll just set aside Nebraska for a moment and say um, the legislative history of the country, uh, you know, from from the very earliest days of America, you know, allows for you know the the majority to consolidate a certain amount of power in the legislature to um, to allow them to push forward a political agenda. You know, there's an election. Um, people say, hey, we want you to do X. Uh, maybe it has something to do with the PFD. Maybe it's got something to do with, you know, oil tax policy, whatever it is. The legislature is geared to allow that uh, will to be expressed by consolidating power in the hands of the majority party and and you can find that you know same uh you know process at work in parliament in, in England or or in any other parliament of any other country um but when you remove the party and you remove what it is that the people ask you to accomplish and then you allow that political power to be concentrated in the hands of someone who is not committed to a political agenda is not committed to particular policy i mean if you watch the press conference of the House majority uh, last month, you know, when they announced their organization, who was a part of it, you know, the, the reporters, um, you know, it, it, it's fascinating press conference just to watch, to get an idea of, of where we're at today in, in this state because the reporters are asking basic questions like, all right, you know what, you, you brought together this group of legislators, you're going to, you know, accomplish something legislature. What are you going to accomplish? And they said, well, we don't know yet. We haven't figured it out yet. Well, you know, we, we know it has nothing to do with the PFD because we don't have any agreement within our, our group on the PFD. Um, and and there's a lot of things we still need to work out. And here we are a month later. You know, the front page of the ADN was, you know, Republicans still don't know what they're doing in the House. Um, and I say Republicans because it's, you know, 19 out of 21. that are part of the bipartisan caucus. And, and so I was speaking on the House floor about that same topic just yesterday. The fact that they literally, in their press conference, were boasting about their what they called their political diversity. Now, that's, that's fine, I guess, as far as the country as a whole. But if you're actually trying to put forward a political goal and accomplish it, you, you don't want political diversity because you're basically saying, Well, we brought these Democrats in, we brought these independents in, we don't agree on anything, and now, you know, we're the ones in charge of, of making something happen, but we don't know what the something is yet. Because literally, the organizing principle around which they organized and came together was political power for themselves. Now, once we have the political power for ourselves, once we've excluded as many other people from the legislature is possible i.e you know the conservative district like mine then what's left what are they there to accomplish well not what the people ask them to because that's not why they organize the caucus so um, should it be that way no what's the response well if you picture what happens when um, you know the parents the voters step away for an extended period of time and, you know, come back to the playground or come back to the bedroom, whatever it is. And now you get to see what the kids were doing while mom and dad were away. Well, things got pretty bad. And now the public needs to decide. All right. Either we we scrapped the whole affair and we move to Tahiti or we get back in there and we figure out. All right. What are the things we're willing to tolerate as voters? Um, you know, members of our community, from our uh, elected government officials, and what are the things that we're not going to tolerate? Because i tell you, in 49 other states, these things are not tolerated by voters. Our state is an exception. You we know, not, you know, allow that.
0: Something that has just, just boggled my mind, and I, I'm still frustrated by this, is that I was rather hopeful with the last session, when we saw so many freshman legislators or, or new legislators returning um, that were, quote-unquote, conservative, was that we would finally see a restoration of this rep- of proper representation within our, our republic system. And people like my boss, Ron Gillum, who i believe entered their positions intending to do the right thing how quickly under this this caucus system changed their position to things that don't even remotely rep- resemble conservative positions And with this give and take of having these coalition sort of majorities, these caucuses that are, you know, they, 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 I remember the freshmen like, like, um, like Mr. Gillum and and some of the newer representatives like uh, Ben Carpenter and Sarah Vance, you know, speaking strongly against the idea of a binding caucus, you know, then compromising and voting on things that didn't even closely resemble conservatism. And, and now when you look at the people who remain in those positions, now you have to question whether or not they meant anything that they ran on to begin with, because if it's my understanding that, you know, one of the big proponents for this binding caucus scenario currently is, is representative Ben Carpenter. And, um, you know, he's a veteran. He served the country honorably. He went to Juneau with uh, some very uh, bold statements about how he was going to help drain the swamp. Essentially my words, not his necessarily, but, um, but now if you look at his position, I can't tell the difference between him and, his predecessor.
1: No, Ben's a great example of someone who, you know, I, I initially encouraged him to run, you know, before he, you know, filed for office and, and was very hopeful. And he is now a a spokesman for the swamp. And, and I guess my, um, you know, my takeaway having watched this, you know, for a few cycles in the legislature is that uh, legislators are, are only human. And, and when you put someone in an environment that, rewards um, a certain amount of, of acquiescence to the swamp, and, uh, and then you punish them if they you know, don't or don't quickly enough, uh, et cetera, then uh, you know, human nature prevails and, and your, your legislators will act accordingly um, with, with few exceptions. I mean, I maybe had a, a, a number of advantage over some of my colleagues because, one, I knew what I was getting into ahead of time, I've been fighting the corruption in the Republican Party for, um, gosh, uh, I guess uh, almost a decade before I, you know, was first elected to the legislature. Uh, so I had an idea there, you know, had a base of support that was going to hold, you know, me accountable and and was going to make sure that I didn't um, <laughs> sell out. Uh, but you know, the other thing is, last year as I watched sort of the transition from, you know, new freshman conservative legislator to, uh, you know, those who are, are you know, completely committed to the system as it exists right now is just that legislators, I think most of them, um, surrender before they sell out and, and they don't, you know, get elected and, and, you know, on day number one say, Hey, what's in it for me and sell out. Of course, there's always, you know, some that that do, but I think the majority, um, you know, they come up against the tidal wave of the swamp and they say, well, gosh, there's, there's no way I can win. Um, they give up. And then at some point after that, you know, when the swamp comes, Colin says, Hey, you know, uh, if you look the other way here, or if you just don't vote against this here, then, you know, there's something, something good for you or less pain and, and less punishment. If you do, they say, well, gosh, you know, I couldn't win anyways. Um, I wasn't going to be able to accomplish whatever it was that people were asking for. So compromise, You know, nobody really loses anything. Why would I?
0: And you keep your per diem and paycheck for the next. uh, Yeah. Why would I invite
1: punishment um, when I can't win anyways? Might as well go along with it, and and a lot do.
0: Well, the term you used that struck a chord here is acquiesce, and that reminds me of uh, it's sort of a a confrontational question I asked Representative Gillum. last year as as they were uh coming out of the vote on um HB 172 which was SB 124 the um and this was the the law that uh and I'll go ahead and read just an abstract that the ADN published about the nature of the law it said House Bill 172 which establishes crisis stabilization and residential centers recently became law in Alaska. The legislation provides much needed improvements for Alaska's mental and behavioral health system and will improve public safety. And um, when I, so, I mean, that sounds nice. I mean, who doesn't want improved public safety? And a better health, uh, behavioral health system. But what was scary in this was that what this abstract didn't explain is that it it removed the due process uh, protections. That um, I always get the titles mixed up. Is it Title Forty Seven or Forty Two um, for the? Uh, uh, hospitalization of, of folks that are in danger of harming themselves or others. Yeah. You S- know, it's psych-
1: probably 47, but, but I spend most of my time in 42. Um, so I, I, you know, couldn't tell you from memory, but uh, so, but yeah, it was.
0: So essentially prior to this bill, if you were perceived by others in your community or your family to be a potential danger that you are mentally unstable or emotionally disturbed to the level that you might harm yourself or you might harm other people that they could petition the court to instruct the troopers to go pick you up against your will involuntarily and transport you to a hospital for observation and if necessary sedation and and uh, pharmaceutical intervention But there was a process to that. There was due process. You had to go before the court and provide the court with sufficient evidence, probable cause, that if there was not an intervention, or in this case, really an arrest made under this title, that something terrible was going to happen to either yourself or to those in your community or family around you. But what Title 172 or uh, HB 172 did was it stripped uh, our regulatory statutes or the codes around uh, how we deal with the mentally ill and in place said, now we're going to leave the decision to a mental health practitioner and the troopers aside from any kind of evidentiary process executed through due process in the courts, and enter the recent case of uh, Mary Fulp. Now, is Mary in your district or is she in Palmer? This is yeah, the, this is uh, the Colony High School principal. Yeah, she's a principal in in Palmer, so I I represent the Wasilla side. Okay, so she was she was. Unlawfully. So, first of all, she's the principal of the year. If you're unhinged, you might ask, you know, how likely is it to be that you will become the principal of the year? So, we'll just leave that one on the side there for people to consider. But for those of you who didn't hear about this story, essentially some family members called the troopers and said, you know, she's unhinged essentially, my words, not theirs, but um, you need to check up on her. And uh, so they did. And then if I understand the story correctly, they went back and they actually detained her, which she, she was uh, mindful enough to videotape the whole thing on her phone. So you can go and go to the Alaska Watchman. I believe you can through uh, through that you can you can link to some videos that she took of the whole process of her detention, but ultimately she was detained, hospitalized, sedated, restrained, only to find out after the fact that what the troopers did was unlawful, and they were acting on information that seems not to have been correct that there was even a, like a false uh, court document or court order or something that they had been presented with or told about. but the point being that that uh, this law who these conservative representatives, Mr. Gillum being one of which should have never voted for because it's a it's a direct in direct conflict with with uh, the Constitution, And our liberty under that constitution was nonetheless voted for because of, you know, I, the only thing I can say after his response was, it seems there was some horse trading that happened, but he didn't represent my interest. And in doing so with this caucus and following the direction of his colleagues and leadership and not the concerns raised by his constituents, which there were many who raised these concerns. We now have a law that he said in this Republican meeting where I confronted him was not nearly as bad as it, its original form when initially presented by the governor in the first round of, of debate and discussion at the legislature. So he sort of, brushed off the fact that it was junk law, it was bad law, to say it was less bad than it originally had been and and could give no explanation why he voted for it other than he's part of this caucus which supported the passage of this law that now has deprived a woman of her liberty and potentially her life because when a drug, a medication, is administered to anyone, there's always the potential for adverse effects. And so not only was she taken from her home without probable cause and detained without a properly authorized, you know, Title 47, I think it is, but then she was injected with a foreign substance that could have, thank God it didn't, but could have, Put her life in jeopardy, all because somebody wanted to get back at her. It appears, and and this is what we we see increasingly coming out of Juno from this broken system where we the people no longer um, have control over a legislature that's run amok, and all I, I I'll probably miss. Um, you read the, the, the Constitution more than I do, I presume, David. But if, if I've got it right, in, in Article 1 of the Alaska Constitution, it essentially says all power, political power, and legal authority is wholly derived from, by, and for the Alaska people, the people of Alaska meaning that nothing happens in Juno without our consent. But that's not where it seems we have arrived.
1: No, no. Our, uh, our government has been co-opted by uh, some very powerful special interests. Um, you know, we saw that with House Bill 172 and about the same time that was going on. Uh, we saw what happened with the patient advocacy uh, protections that the legislature wanted to uh, add to the law last year. And, well, actually, at the end of, of 2020, uh, 21. And, and the legislature, the House, you know, voted to, to add uh, the right of a, a patient in a hospital to have somebody of their choosing, you know, be with them in their hospital room. Um, and the hospital said, you know, no, we don't want that. Um, and, uh, and they killed the bill. Um, you know, the governor came in and said he didn't support it anymore. Suddenly the bill, you know, disappeared into a, a bottomless pit. Um, so the, you have some special interests in this state that are, are very powerful. And, uh, and they have lots of ways of persuading legislators to vote, uh, against, you know, their better judgment or, or basically to undo, you know, a vote that they just cast, uh, in that case. And you know, in this House Bill 172, you you've just got some crazy things going on there. I mean, you're now giving, uh, for the first time in in our state law, you're giving health officers, you know, the ability to arrest people, um, and and that includes firefighters, police officers, and EMTs, amongst the other, you know others on the list. I've I've been a firefighter, I've been a police officer, I've been an EMT. Um, in no, none of those situations, was I ever, you know, trained in, in how to, uh, you know, evaluate someone as far as, you know, professionally based on their mental health and whether or not, um, you know, they, they're they in need of, of, you know, that type of medication. Um, that's just, that's not part of the training. Uh, and yet we are now, you know, giving all of these people and others the ability to, to look at someone and say, oh, yeah, you know, I think you should be... Uh, uh, effectively, you know, committed temporarily, um, you know, involuntary commitment used to be a pretty rigorous process, like you were saying, You've got judges and courts involved. And, and, and it could take a while before, you know, you get to a determination to say, you know, someone needs to be, you know, committed to the insane asylum or, or whatever. And now we want to make that a much easier process. So, I mean, I call House Bill 172, the, you know, increasing trust and faith in government bill, because that's what it's about. It's, now, just by virtue of the fact that I'm an EMT and I'm part of the government, you know, trust me to make decisions about whether or not you're, you know, a healthy member of society or you need to be, you know, put away and involuntarily injected with psychotropic medication.
0: But it's interesting, this, this, uh, this principal has retained an attorney now and, uh, I hope she wins whatever lawsuit she, she pursues if she, if she does. Um, But ultimately, that hurts us. That hurts us as a state because that's more dollars going towards uh, the state defending its unconstitutional actions that could otherwise be spent, you know, in whatever, education, substance abuse prevention, uh, uh, hiring more police officers to fight crime on the streets, whatever. You know, that's, that's money that's basically just been thrown away because a group of people Decided, you know, the Constitution really doesn't apply. We are the philosopher kings. We're the smart people. We'll make the decisions for you, lowly plebes that can't take care of yourself. Aren't you grateful that we're here to save you? And um, the, it's interesting. We have a high profile public figure here in this principal, at least in her community, she's high profile. And in the community, broader community of education, you know, as the principal of the year, she's high profile. But previously, there was a story about a man, I believe it was, uh, it was either Bethel or Dillingham, a homeless man who was picked up during the midst of the COVID lockdowns. Uh, somehow he was found to be uh, asymptomatically infected with COVID. So he had nowhere, he, he was feeling fine, but they said he had COVID. And they instructed him to shelter in a hotel if I'm not mistaken. And uh, he decided, you know, I don't want to stay in the hotel. So he left. So then they picked him up again, and they put him in the hotel, and he's like, I don't want to be here, and he left. And eventually they arrested him. They put him in jail. And then after the fact, they got the state medical officer, Ann Zink, to write an affidavit supporting their wrongful incarceration of this man as or jailing of this man as uh, as necessary, and she provided this affidavit, not being boots on the ground, but just being a bureaucrat, she basically wrote after the fact that there's probable cause to arrest this man. when the police should have had that probable cause, I mean you you've been a law uh, enforcement officer you can't just go arrest people without probable cause and then make your case after the fact say okay we better find some evidence now but that's what he did and it seems that this 172 is just the codification of that process now that we can go ahead and remove people from their homes from their places of work detain them drug them and then decide well do we have enough here to make a case and um, so you used the word co-opt uh, earlier, and uh, we've run a little long, so I want to be mindful of your time. If if you have time to, to talk briefly about how Juno is trying to co-opt our liberty in this session, uh, what bills we might need to be looking at and paying attention to right now, I'd like to offer you that opportunity. We're at about a, an hour and eight minutes. Um, but uh, is there anything on your radar that you think is particularly important for us to key into right now and maybe call our, our legislator about?
1: Um, yeah, well, I, I think the, there, there's a lot of ways to distract the public and, and uh, the legislature and uh, particularly the, the, those, um, you know, in bed with the swamp are, are good at distracting the public and, and they can raise all sorts of boogeyman of, well, state income tax or, or, you know, pick your poison. Um, and and scare people with that. And, and I think there's always, you know, always bad things that the swamp is trying to do. So that's always real as far as that goes. But, you know, today, um, when you look at what what happened in the House and what happened in the Senate, um, basically what the swamp is doing uh, right now, probably for the next you know, year or two, uh, not unlike the last two years, is it's taking, you know, all these uh, Republican legislators that were elected, you know, with conservative support and basically convincing them not to do anything particularly conservative. And so a lot of the energy, you know, has gone into co-opting them through the caucus system, um, you know, re-engineering it so that they can, you know, try and say with a straight face, maybe a not so straight face that, well, it's not really a binding caucus because, you know, not Everyone technically needs to vote for the bill. We're just going to make sure it all passes and we're all committed to making sure it all passes. And we're all, you know, committed to intending to vote for it, but you know, maybe a couple of us can not vote for it and that's okay. Um, you know, that that's where a lot of the energy has gone to. And that's why you're a month into the session and, and really nothing has happened, uh, particularly in the house. Um, so the energy right now is, is all the good things like, ending ranked choice voting that that should be happening right now, like increasing election integrity, that should be happening, like repealing House Bill 172. I mean, all these things should be happening immediately because they are, um, you know, there's great public support for doing them. They're good policy and, and there's really no excuse not to be, you know, doing them, Uh, but they're not happening. And so, you know, a lot of energy right now has gone into keeping them from happening. So, um, I, I think that the message to the legislature is you are elected to accomplish, you know, uh, political priorities, you know, whatever it was that uh, you know, your candidate, uh, your legislator, you know, said they were going to do. And, and when you call them up and say, hey, why aren't you doing and Why aren't these things happening? And they, and they give you some line about, oh, you know, the caucus or the Democrats or whatever, you know, don't take no for an answer. I mean, that's what they're elected to do. Um, that's what some of us are fighting every day to accomplish. Uh, but right now we are, um, you know, I was told, uh, or I'm, I'm a minority leader and a super minority, uh, just like the, the Republican, you know, the two Republicans in the Hawaii Senate. Uh, well, that's us here in Alaska right now. And that should not be that way based on, um, you know, who the, the public is, who the voters are, what the, the people of Alaska want. That is not the way it should be. And so to, you know, convince your legislator to uh, rethink some of their decisions and the uh, alliances and, and loyalties that they've made, uh, particularly to the caucus system. I mean, that's where, um, you know, the, the other side's energy is going, to keeping that in place. And so our, our energy should be into absolutely, you know, pulling it apart, you know, two by four by two by four so that we can actually put forward. Um, you know, good conservative policy, not just in this legislature, but in the future. Because I mean, we really have to get past this caucus system in order to be able to allow the people to speak at elections and and to change the course of government. Right now, they get to speak all they want at the election, and the the rudder literally doesn't move at all in the legislature, and that that's where the problem is.
0: So, any any specific bills that that uh, you're looking for support on right now? No, I wouldn't say it's a, it's a particular bill. It is literally
1: um, the concentration of power in the legislature. Because, uh, again, it what what that concentration of power means, and, and you can see this in the decisions made by um, all of the Republicans elected to the legislature except for four of us. Because all of them, except for four of us, Voted literally cast their vote in support of the current caucus system. Um, Mike Schauer, uh wasn't there. He, he he didn't cast a vote. He would have been a no vote, I'm sure. Uh, Shelley Hughes, Rob Myers, myself, we were the three no votes, and and there were 56 yes votes for for this system and and to keep it in place and to maintain it, and and that is um, that is the decision. At which point, you know, you're you're basically looking at voters and you're saying, you know, yeah, you could have voted for me or the other guy, but it didn't matter because you know I'm doing what the other guy would have done anyway. And you are literally in the Senate joining a caucus with the Democrats, putting them in leadership positions. In the House doing the same thing, we put the Democrats in charge of the finance committee. I mean, the most powerful committee in the legislature is now run by the Democrats. And so the the, the person who is running the House right now is still Bryce Edgman. Um, just like he, he ran the House for the first four years in, in my tenure uh, as the speaker. Well, now he's running it as the co-chair of the Finance Committee. Um, and so there is absolutely no reason for Republicans to be excited about that arrangement. He's a lifelong Democrat. Now he's technically undeclared. He's an undeclared lifelong Democrat. Hasn't changed his policies one iota. And, and now the Republicans, you know, before they you know say boo, have to go and get permission from him.
0: Well, it's 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 apparent that wisdom is needed. And uh we we I would encourage our listeners to pray for David Eastman and Mike Shower and uh, all of our legislators that God's will would be revealed to them whether they're believers or not and that he would give them wisdom. And um, I'm going to do something a little bit different to close out today's podcast, because this is something I'm trying to do in my own life more and more is see where God's word might apply. And so today's uh, podcast is going to conclude with uh, Proverbs 25. And I would ask you not to turn off the podcast, uh, because it's scripture, uh, whether you're a believer or not, uh, there is wisdom in the word of God in the Bible, uh, as there is wisdom in, in other ancient texts. Uh, but I, I hold the Bible personally to be of a greater, um, importance because I believe it is a divinely inspired word of the one creator, God. And, um, and that there is power in that word. And when we feel powerless to make change, when we feel powerless to um, impact the system which we're all living under now, and I would say under, um, we have to look to power outside of ourselves to correct the wrongs that are being done. And to help make the path straight that is is maybe not so apparent, and to put uh, encouragement and and um, uh, I guess uh, momentum behind people who maybe are reluctant to serve but should be serving. So this is meant to be an encouragement. It's meant to be a warning. Um, it's it's meant to be uh, something that that you can. Meditate on, reflect on over the next week until we're able to meet again. Uh, So before I launch into here, I just want to say thank you to David. Um, David, I'm going to read this. You'll hear the outro music, and then we will be done with this podcast. But I really appreciate the extra time you've given us, and we look forward to catching up with you again um, as this session unfolds. And uh, you're always welcome here on the Conservative Hour of Power. So without uh, further ado, yeah. Yeah. Did you have a closing comment you want to make or have you said it all? Um, no, no, I, I think it's all been said other
1: than, you know, listen to to what your legislators saying. You know, on, on Wednesday, the Speaker of the House, a Republican literally said, we don't have to follow the Constitution anymore because, you know, we have precedent that somebody else didn't. So we're going to do that instead. I mean, listen to what they're saying, think about it for a minute and then prayerfully respond because it, it needs a response.
0: That's right. Okay, so here we go. This is, uh, this is Proverbs 25, and um, I'm reading from the New American Standard uh, Bible, uh, 1995 edition. These also are Proverbs of Solomon, which the man of Hezekiah, king of Judah, transcribed. It is the glory of God to conceal a matter. But the glory of kings is to search out a matter. As the heavens for height and the earth for depth, so the heart of kings is unsearchable. Take away the dross from the silver, and there comes out a vessel for the smith. Take away the wicked before the king, and his throne will be established in righteousness. Do not claim honor in the presence of the King and do not stand in the place of great men for it is better that it be said to you, come up here than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the Prince whom your eyes have seen. Do not go out hastily to argue your case. Otherwise, what will you do in the end when your neighbor humiliates you argue your case with your neighbor And do not reveal the secret of another. Or he who hears it will reproach you, and the evil report about you will not pass away. Like apples of gold in settings of silver is a word spoken in right circumstances. Like an earring of gold and an ornament of fine gold is a wise reprover to to a listening ear. Like the cold of snow in the time of harvest is a faithful messenger to those who send him, for he refreshes the soul of his masters. Like clouds and wind within rain is a man who boasts of his gifts, gifts falsely. But forbearance, a ruler may be persuaded, and or by forbearance, a ruler may be persuaded, and a soft tongue breaks the bone. Have you found honey? Eat only what you need that you not have it in excess and vomit it. Let your foot rarely be in your neighbor's house, or he will become weary of you and hate you. Like a club and a sword and a sharp arrow is a man who bears false witness against his neighbor. Like a bad uh, tooth and an unsteady foot is confidence in a faithless man in time of trouble. Like one who takes off a garment on a cold day, or like vinegar on soda, is he who sings songs to a troubled heart. If your enemy is hungry, give him food to eat, and if he is thirsty, give him water to drink. For you will heap burning coals on his head, and the Lord will reward you. The north wind brings forth rain, and a backbiting tongue and angry countenance. It is better to live in a corner of the roof than in a house shared with a contentious woman. Like cold water to a weary soul, so is good news from a distant land. Like a trampled spring in a polluted well is a righteous man who gives, away, gives way before the wicked. It is not good to eat much honey, nor is it glory to search out one's own glory like a city that is broken into and without walls is a man who has no control over his spirit. So friends, neighbors, uh, patrons have hope for the future. Uh, Look to God's word and there's a lot there to consume, but uh, you know, I was just going to read the part about heaping coals on your enemy's head, but It's never wise to do that. Read the book. Not just the verse, not just the chapter, not just the book in which that chapter resides, but the whole collection of books. God will lead us in the way that we should go. He will not let us stumble on a stone. He'll set the path straight for us. And he's got our back at the end of the day. You've been listening to the Amokan Coffee, Social Club, Conservative Hour of Power, and Enlightenment Salon. We look forward to you joining us. Like and share this with all of your friends. Pray for David Eastman and for our state. God bless you all.